Welcome to Remarkable Woman Radio. I am your host, Mandy Beverly. This is a podcast for women by women. As we know, a rising tide lifts all boats, but sometimes we know there can be a few stormy seas. So when the tough times happen, the proverbial hits the fan, what do you do? Who do you have to become in the process? That's the real story, and that's remarkable. We love to tell the story of women that are a few steps further ahead on their own entrepreneurial journey. They know exactly what it feels like to be where you are. So these women are not only paving the way for themselves, but they're also paving the way for the women that follow in their footsteps. This is Remarkable Woman Radio. Welcome to Remarkable Woman Radio. I'm here with my guest, Anna Kiusis, and I'm really excited to be speaking with her today because this remarkable woman has been working for more than 20 years in war-torn countries as an international aid consultant. And we're going to hear more about Anna's remarkable story and how she's helped people in developing countries and how it's actually helped her lead led her to establish her own luxury brand. So welcome along to the show, Anna. Oh, hi, Mandy. Lovely to be here. Whereabouts are you right now? I'm in Mount Eden in Auckland. Um, of course, it's lockdown and um, we're all on our screens here at home <laughs> because I've got two girls and they're, yeah, they've been doing homeschooling, of course, since since August. Yeah. Right. So you are um, adept at multitasking and things like that at the moment. Yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, both my husband and I have actually been working from home for many years now. So being at home and working from home is not a new thing for us. So um, there are good good things about it in the sense that we all pitch in and do all the domestics um, that go with the day-to-day things. Um, so working from home gives us that flexibility to, to juggle um, around all of our family um, needs. <laughs> now, on in your bio, you were telling me that you have lived in Nepal, um, and even just back before that, that you have um, been working in developing countries for many years now. Can you tell us how you got started with that? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, um, you know, a young 20-year-old 20, 20 or 21-year-old straight out of university, and I'm now revealing my age, but it was the late 80s, and there, <laughs> there was a, a recession um, in Australia because I was, I was born there, and um, yeah, I... I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I picked up the phone one day and rang the Volunteers Association and spoke to a lovely person there who gave me three ideas or three organisations that needed um, help. Um, And so one of them in particular was quite an interesting one, and that was to help um, uh, an organisation that did cataract surgery in developing countries. And the person who set, well, the the person who set that up was Professor Frank Bilson. And so I went and, um, and basically said I could do some fundraising for you or do a bit of publicity for you and they said yes and I did that for about six weeks and they liked what I did and before I knew it I was formally employed by them and the first thing they did is they sent me to Papua New Guinea and it was then when I landed in Garoka up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea um, where there was an eye clinic being done so there was a two ophthalmologists conducting eye surgery for a period of five days and I was there basically to write content and take photographs Um, but it was a biblical scene Um, I mean if anyone has been to Papua New Guinea they would know it's it's a very subsistence society it's very tribal Um, and so it was just yeah it was a biblical scene you had hundreds and hundreds of people walking for days from nearby and far villages coming to the eye clinic to get their eyes checked Um, and then of course cataract operations were being performed and people some people were 
registered as legally blind. Um, I mean, it was it was it was truly a biblical scene. But it was during that two week period that I was there that I realized that actually this is really what I'd like to do. And it was just the realization that my nature um, really suited this work. And so from that point onwards, I um, yeah I went on and did a master's in international development and then worked for a number of international aid organizations and moved from working in the Pacific to then later on working in um, South and Southeast Asia. Goodness. And, and um, I've seen that you've um, you've been in Kiribati, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, all of these countries as well as on the Pacific. So... Yes, yes. So um, my my focus at the beginning was the Pacific um, and, you know, establishing things like um, eye health programs um, in those Pacific Island countries, um, establishing sort of special ed, special education um, in the curriculum of universities so that teachers could be trained in special ed, so that kids that had special education needs were not segregated from mainstream education. Um, and after doing that for a period of time, I, um, you know, kept, I guess, um, working for other aid agencies. And um, and then, of course, I worked in those countries, um, including Sri Lanka, which at the time was going through um, the ethnic war um, between the Sinhalese and the Tamils. So I was, yeah, pretty much living and working in Sri Lanka for a period of time during those turbulent years um, and going into the northeast where the war zone was. Um, so it was quite dangerous, actually. And yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds it. Much of it, you know, um, I, I just did what I had to do and I spent about six or seven months of the year um, monitoring and evaluating a whole lot of projects from agriculture, education, um, advocacy projects like anti-trafficking campaigns in that sub-Indian continent. Um, but my focus really was on businesses and microfinance, um, especially for women. Um, that was really my forte, um, looking at ways that we could um, ensure that women had access somehow to employment, um, because we all knew that if women had access to an income, then the whole family would benefit. So that was, and that's really hard in the Indian subcontinent where there's strict sort of cultural traditions, um, caste systems. I mean, much, yeah, we had to talk often to the men before we could actually get to the women. And so development work is really, really hard and it takes a really long time um, to change. Have you seen a difference over the last 20 years or so? Do you, well, do you notice yeah. a big difference? Oh my God, it's a it's an interesting question because um, you know you're always you're always hopeful. I mean, in times of emergency relief, such as when the tsunami hit um, South and Southeast Asia, of course there is an immediate relief. You know, you bring in all those relief things and, you know, people get on with their lives. So from that perspective, yes, of course. Development work, though, takes a longer time to, to change. And, and I think at the end of my 20 years of working in international development, I was a little bit disillusioned. I just felt that millions and millions of dollars was being poured into projects that sometimes were not as sustainable um, as I would have liked them to be. Um, but what they did for me, though, is that it created a bit of an insight into how we could actually do things better. Um, so, for example, quite a bit of effort and money was spent on um, setting up women with microfinance and maybe doing sort of husbandry or, you know, chicken rearing or goat rearing. But, of course, the goat dies, the chicken dies, and we're back to square one. And But what that gave me, um, what the idea that I had after that was, well, how can we, um, you know, look at the skill sets that these women 
have and the resources resources that they have and how can we connect them to international markets um, so that they can actually have a more sustainable income. And so after 20 years, rather, I I left and I took a very courageous (laughs) um, move Mm -hmm. to actually set up my own um, organisation. And what I did was I went to Sri Lanka because I knew the country and I knew that it is a country that produces so much spice, for example, like cinnamon and cardamom. And um, we came up with the idea of converting, say, lemongrass into an essential oil by wanting to build a steam distillation unit in the countryside of Sri Lanka. And I went as far as the government giving me land um, and things were going really, really well. But right at the end, um, again, the politics got in the way and um, I was told that I could only employ Sinhalese people and not Tamil people. And so I just... Yeah, and, um, you know, moved the project to to Nepal and I'm happy to say now that there is a a steam distillation unit in uh, Chitwan in um, uh, Nepal which converts raw materials produced by local people into essential oils and therefore it's an added value product which brings in income um, to that community. So that, I I guess, gave me confidence um, and insight into, well, things can work better um, we don't always, always have, have to follow, follow a traditional model. We just have to think outside the square and, um, yeah, and, and, and do actually, that. Yeah. Yeah, and as you say, and this, this shift to a whole new country where you could actually make it happen. And this mm. just happened to be when there's this worldwide trend of essential oils as well, So, which is, you know, quite serendipitous, isn't it? Well, that's right. I mean, essential oils are in everything from cleaners to cosmetics to just about everything, really, even food, actually. So it is a commodity that, um, you know, people, manufacturers, want and I think that's the key is when you're looking at businesses it's yeah is there a demand for what what you're producing and how can we harness the skills and the resources that people in developing countries have and can do really really well the problem is that they are in rural areas and they don't always have access to distribution channels and markets and that is the critical thing Um, but they are very savvy wonderful you know very capable people that can do amazing things very resourceful actually very resourceful. Wow. And so that um, we're going to talk about, I'd love to talk about your brand that you have now. Um, mm. And then we'll go back and find out a little bit more about you as well. But um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Kashmiri now? Oh, I'd love to. Thanks, Mandy. Um, Thank you. Well, last year um, in March, of course, the first lockdown in um, New Zealand, and I had time on my hands. Um, I was cleaning out my wardrobe, and um, and as we all did, (laughs) we all did. We decluttered, you know, and now we're decluttering again. But I opened, you know, one of my drawers, and there was, you know, layers and layers of these beautiful cashmere um, shawls and scarves and um, that I had acquired on my travels in the Indian subcontinent, but predominantly in Nepal. And in particular, there's this very rich Tibetan red shawl that I have. And I bought that from a little um, studio in the back streets of uh, Kathmandu in November 1999. Um, And it was my first trip. (laughs) Now I'm really showing my age. Um, But it was my first trip to Nepal. And um, during, you know, we we were always working hard. And during the weekend, I'd just take off and wander the streets, um, the back streets, just discovering things. And I came across this little workshop and it was... um, full of women weaving on um, handlooms, on traditional handlooms. And, um, you know, they were all chatting amongst themselves and there was incense burning and piled up high. There were just layers and layers of 
so many coloured um, cashmere shawls. I mean, it was almost like entering a jewellery store or a lollipop shop or something, but it was just beautiful. And, um, you know, the Buddhist monastery down the road, you can hear the Buddhist chanting, and it was just really quite a hedonistic time. And I found myself going there and, um, you know, they were so gracious and we would have cups of tea and they would tell me about their lives and how they made things and showed me how they would spin the cashmere wool and where it came from and it was the softest thing and so I was actually quite addicted by this because it was um yeah it was just a joyful thing and so I would visit them during the course of the week that I or the remaining week that I was there and bought lots and lots of shawls from from them to gift my family and friends back in Sydney but I bought this one red one for me and I remember wearing it um you know days later and then walking into a meeting at this eye um, hospital slash factory, um, the Fred Hollows Interocular Lens Factory, to be precise, in Kathmandu. I was wearing it, and I walked into that meeting, and then I met my husband, um, who was there. And it's like, oh, so whenever I look at this red Tibetan shawl, I am reminded of that time, um, and I'm also reminded of how I wore it pretty much everywhere, like on planes, zigzagging across the world, and Darjeeling at the foot hills of all those tea plantations where it gets quite cool in the evening in air conditioning air conditioning um, conference rooms in Japan or Malaysia and then of course eventually when I made my way and moved from Sydney to Auckland and had our first um, child I would wrap her up in this red cashmere shawl while she was sleeping in my arms for those first few weeks mm-hmm. um, and so for me it brought back all those memories and and then of course I thought I wonder what's happened to these women and how can I find them because again there was really no internet um yeah they still be there in the same little shop (laughs) and I tried to do a google map thing you know um because I kind of remembered what part of you know Kathmandu they were but I just I couldn't find them and so um I rang my mum in Sydney and asked her if um there was any sort of receipt that I had left in a drawer a cupboard somewhere and she thought she thought I was completely insane you know asking her to do this after 21 years it's like, of course not. And she's a minimalist and throws everything away, you see. So anyway, eventually, um, two days later, she rang me and I think she was shocked, but she said, I've actually found the receipt and here's the name. And anyway, so I connected with them and um, found out that they weren't as large as they were. Um, they had dwindled down to just a handful of women. And one of the problems, apart from the fact that there was COVID, um, was also because a lot of the I guess industrial countries had taken over with these mass machineries and producing mm. cashmere shawls, yeah, quite quickly and efficiently. And so that really was quite sad for me because the weaving of these beautiful shawls was something that these women um, were very skilled at and a skill that had been passed down to them through generations. Um, And a place like Nepal doesn't really have a lot of employment opportunities for women apart from agriculture, and that's back-breaking work. It's subsistence work. It really doesn't give them much money um, for their work. And so... Yeah, I just, you know, I talked and talked to them and then I just, I I guess a normal person would, in setting up a business, would probably ring um, New Zealand's Trade and Enterprise and find out a little bit more about taxes and how it all works. But me being duties, customs. (laughs) Me being me, I just, you know, if it feels right, um, I just go for it really. And so before I knew it, I had registered Kashmiri, um, because I saw this wonderful opportunity of um, not only providing luxurious, you know, cashmere shawls, ponchos, robes, throws to people here, 
but also as a way of um, providing employment and possibly expanding and, and providing more employment to more women there. Um, and also, you know, looking at ways that we could upskill um, them. And um, But more importantly, I want to dedicate some of our profits back to girls' education in the poor because, again, um, there are so many problems with, um, well, Nepal has the highest illiteracy rates amongst girls in the world. And we all know if, yeah, if girls are not educated, they're, you know, they don't have the opportunities. And in places like Nepal, it can be really dire because there is a trafficking trade going on with girls. And so for me, it's a, you know, again, you employ women and the whole family and community benefits. And so, um, yeah, so Kasmiri has been born. Um, we've been in business for a year. Um, again, you would say that's a bit crazy setting up a, a business during a pandemic, um, but it's actually been quite, well, I can't say quite good. I mean, that doesn't seem right, but I've had the best fun. Um, I've really had the best fun and it's been wonderful seeing the uptake of um, of Kashmir, of our shores and, and telling people the story and then feeding that back to the women who are who are there producing the most amazing, um, you know, shores. They really get motivated when I show them pictures of our clients um, wearing their beautiful, soft cashmere shawls that they've actually produced using these traditional skills. I love that. That just sounds amazing. And they sound like they just weave a little bit of magic into the shawls as they go. And and I love the story that it's connected you right back 20 years and Um, to just the you know, coincidence of finding an old receipt from 20 years ago because that doesn't happen very often. (laughs) I think it missed my mum, really, because if she had found it, I'm sure she would have thrown it away. So, yeah, maybe it was meant to be. I know it sounds really heebie-jeebie, but maybe it was really meant to be because, um, yeah, I've I've had a lot of fun doing this and um, somewhere deep down there is a, a bit of creativity that I wanted to touch base with and um um and my mum you see my mum has always been she's been a dressmaker all her life I mean she's about to turn 80 um next year and so my memories of childhood was that you know these women would come over for a dress fitting and I was allowed to stay and listen to their stories. And so I'm a great, um, I love listening to people's stories and I love communicating. And so I guess with COVID, one of the things I've missed about, you know, being in lockdown, I've missed um, uh, that connection um, that I've had with our clients and listening to their stories about how they love the product and where they've worn it and what you know just their stories and yeah that's one thing that I really really miss um but anyway hopefully not too long yeah well the fingers crossed and by the time this um comes out I'm sure that we might be all out and enjoying Christmas and freedom and (laughs) and things like that as well (laughs) that's what we're all going to work towards anyway that's (laughs) that's so cool um and I love what you said um um, earlier to me about people being the center of a circular economy can you just talk a little bit more about that for us yeah, I mean, the definition, I think, of the circular economy is very much focused on environment. So everything you do needs to be environmentally, obviously, you know, sound. And I really get that. And, of course, Kashmir is a bio, it's a natural fibre. Um, it's sustainably sourced and, and, and that's all good. But for me, um, I think a business needs to have people at the centre as well. And so I, one thing why I, you know, why I love what I do at the moment is because um, it is preserving traditional skills um, that these women have. Um, it is, we're, we're able to pay them a fair wage. We're able to um, provide education for their children. And we have expanded and, you know, have employed about 10 more women since we began a year ago. And so for me, 
making sure that women are working in a safe, friendly environment um, in a place like Nepal is is yeah is key um, because as I said most of yeah most of women in these countries in places like Nepal really do most of the backbreaking work. I mean they carry rocks, they carry wood on their heads, they walk for miles to get to a, a water source, um, they work in the fields. It's backbreaking. So to be able to sort of you know, piggyback on something that they know intrinsically and, and produce so beautifully, but provide access to international markets and repatriate some of those profits back to benefit um, their children and then the wider community, I think, is is really what it's all about. And, and yeah, so been, I guess... Hmm. Yeah, and I was going to say, have you been going long enough to actually see the effect of of what's going on here, of the profits going, you know, like some of the profits going back to these women. And so what sort of things are you actually um, beginning to see or what are they telling you of the changes that they've made? Sure. I mean, I think, well, we haven't been, I've got big plans, you know. It's only been a year. It's only been a year and, of course, in the pandemic. But we've been able to support the children of the women that we've employed. And so, of course, most of the children there are going through what our kids are going through here because of lockdowns and not being able to go to school. And so what we've been able to do is support the children of these women with laptops so they can continue their learning, um, but also we're supporting a local um, organisation um, that is for kids that um, are deaf um, and they're not able to um, continue on with their education because it's out in the village. And so we've been providing money to this shelter where they all go um, and they're in lockdown in that shelter, but at least it allows them to continue on with their education. So basically, you know, I guess it's a bit like a sponsoring um, program where we're providing, um, you know, whatever small profits that we've made um, to an initial small group of, of kids. But I've got bigger dreams. Like I, I really want to, oh, I don't know, I want to, to do a lot more than that. And it could be sort of funding satellite schools, um, all sorts of things. Um, yeah, providing um, tuition so that girls can go on to university. I mean, the sky's the limit. Um, and that's all to, to come, really. Yeah. Oh, I mm. love it. And all of your whole background is leading you here, mm. isn't it? And to actually have direct impact. And also the women themselves are also involved in the development. I mean, that's empowering for any woman in the world to yeah, know that they're yeah. part of the change that they want to see. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And they're all vibrant women. I mean, just like us, any, in, in, women anywhere in the world, we all have the same desires. I mean, we, yeah, we all have dreams. We all want the best for our families um, and the best for ourselves. And so, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's it's about honouring those women as well and, um sharing the story with them and the journey with them. Mm. So when things have gone tough, I mean, yes. they've gotten tough, I should say. So when things have gotten tough and you were saying before that you've been in times of danger and putting yourself at risk and also having to go up against cultures and um, and different rules and, and beliefs and things like that. How did you cope during those times? What did you do? Um, I think, um, well, it, it's kind of, well, every situation is different, of course. Um, I think what I've learned over the years through all that experience is to calm down first, I think, <laughs> you know, because there's no point in trying to fix something if you're if you're emotional. Um, oh, and I, and I do, I, I must admit, I am quite a 
oh, emotionally, and it must be the, the Greek background or I don't know what it is, but I, I, do, um, I do very much feel it. So I think the first thing I've learned to do, I guess, over the years is to take time out um, and, um, you know, take time out, step away from it, calm yourself. I always say calm yourself before you actually move on because once you get through all your emotions, I think you're more of a, a rational person um, to then move forward and fix whatever problem you're confronted with. Um, I, it's, it's, yeah, I did cope quite well, though, with those circumstances, and I'm not sure whether it was um, naivety, um, being young and adventurous, and I just, I just got on with the job really um yeah I just I got on with the job and I um talked to the 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 people around me about any issue that I might have had you know so there were times where we would be in a, a tribal belt of Pakistan and I wasn't um my my top button wasn't you know wasn't um, oh, fully done up and fully yeah. done up and I was you know I was told to um, go away or something like that so you learn from those experiences um, to just be more careful next time and uh, yeah so it's yeah it's the power of observation as well I think that's really important to just be very mindful of what you're going into and be well informed so I guess um oh I don't know if I answered that question right but I guess for me um in any decision making process when things are not going right I think it's important to deal with your emotions first before you actually move forward um you're able to do more of a, a rational um have more rational decision making processes I think um and it's certainly you're totally happens. speaking yeah you're totally yeah. speaking my language there because no, I, I happen to agree <laughs> not always we don't always listen to ourselves of course but um but yeah no I think that's actually really important because in the heat of the moment we could be saying things that could be actually really detrimental to totally. more people and in those sort of situations where the stakes are very high you know mm. for a lot of people particularly when you're looking at the vulnerable women and children and things like that as well mm. so no mm. I think that's um that's you know that's really useful and I think even even nowadays as well what we're all you know the world's changed in the last couple of years and I think if everyone does remain a little calmer and 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 just really keeps an eye on their emotions and and sort of not getting fixated on just one thing just keep the mind flexible I think it really really helps a lot totally and I think also it's important to whatever happens I think it's important to be mindful that it's just a moment in time um, and I'm just trying to you know constantly sort of sing this mantra that when you think back to your life there's all sorts of setbacks all sorts of difficult situations but I'm still here now um, and so yeah it's just a moment in time and the only thing that's terminal is really death <laughs> so 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 you know um, if you can just ride the wave um, um, you'll get through it um, so it's just a moment in time I, I'm a big believer in having a good cry, I think, <laughs> as well. I think it's a very underestimated strategy. I honestly believe people think crying is a sign of weakness, but I'm of the opinion that I think you should be allowed to have a cry um, grieve your, you know, if it's sad or if you're angry, just let it all out. Um, and it might take you half an hour, it might take you a, a, an hour or a day or even a week, but I think you need to give yourself time to just get rid of that emotion um, and don't deal with the problem when you are in that emotional state um, and walk away from it. And then you'll eventually get tired of crying and come back and then you're, <laughs> you're stronger um, in dealing with the problem. And, and, and yeah, that's my, um, that's, I guess that's my strategy. And the other strategy I have is, of course, the whole 
um, yeah, exercise thing and, and walking and thinking of nothing and, and or even going and doing some gardening outside and being one with nature and seeing your plants grow and, you know, observing them through the seasons. I think that's also a great, um, a great way to deal with problems and step away from it all. Mm. Oh, I love that. I, you know, and um, thank you because that's great advice because I always like to ask um, what happens when the proverbial hits the fan because we know in life it does. And so mm-hmm. it's unrealistic to expect that it won't. Um, mm. But I think it's really helpful if we've all got strategies, whether it's to have a glass of wine and turn Netflix on, <laughs> which one of my guests said. <laughs> or I love that just watching the garden, you know, watching the flowers grow or just mm. being outside and having a good cry, letting the emotions mm. out. Is that a bit of the Greek in you as well? Um, oh, definitely. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah, I, yeah, my whole Greek tribe is a very emotional kind of family. I mean, it's so vocal, you know, they just love to talk through their problems. <laughs> share. We, you know, I've always thought, you know, if I complain about something and then I'm talking to some, a friend who might be Greek and they say, oh, you think you've got problems. I've got this, this and this. And so they always try and outdo you, you know, by, by laying on their problems but anyway it's a, it might be a Greek thing yeah oh I think it's great now Anna if you could go back and talk to your younger self what advice would you give her because I think as you alluded to me earlier on that you were kind of fell into the career that has then defined what you're doing for the last 20 years and will continue to by the sounds of it so what advice would you give to your younger self um, well, I'd, I'd have to, oh, this sounds, um, to be honest, um, I think I'm in awe of that younger self. Um, <laughs> I'm in awe of the, the adventure and the dreamer that she was. I'm hoping that I still am. I, I guess I'm more cautious now, um, but my younger self um, was definitely, um, you know, just went out and did things. And so like jumping on that plane and, and heading off to Papua New Guinea, and that was my first entree into a developing country and of course it had to be Papua New Guinea, which is one of the most dangerous places on earth I mean in terms of um, violence and especially violence towards women I mean there's no law and order but I jumped on that plane and I was so happy to be doing it and I was going off into this adventure Um, and so and all through even in my early 30s when I um well, my 30s and 20s when I worked in these countries, I was always, yeah, out there under kind of very strenuous situations and, and not sleeping in the most luxurious places, that's for sure. Um, but I was um, I was always there and I enjoyed it. And so um, I must somehow have, a, yeah, I think I had a strong belief in myself and a, a huge desire to make a difference. Um, always took challenges and um, yeah I so I'm in awe of her and um, yeah it was, it was such it, a- yeah I think um, I love that answer because it just made me suddenly think back to the what I did and the risks you take or some of the silly things we did but also some of the just we just didn't think too much about it we just got on with it it's like okay this is what I want to do so I'm going to go on and apply for it. I'm going to do it. And just looking back, you just just did it. So Exactly. And that's why you are who you are now. Um, so it's actually a wonderful thing um, to have had those experiences. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for that. And um, I'm also grateful, I guess, for, I don't know, maybe my upbringing, um, although, you know, my both my parents were migrants from Greece, they were quite expansive and allowed me to sort of, yeah, go out and do whatever I wanted to do. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for them because they too were great adventurers, especially my father. So, I mean, he jumped ship. Uh, he was an illegal immigrant in Western Australia and jumped ship and um, uh, at the age of 17. So, 
Wow. He's a great pioneer. So maybe, maybe genetically, I don't know. <laughs> There's a bit of give <laughs> in there in um, sort of, yeah, just going for anything really, yeah. I yeah. love hearing about those stories too because they're – it's gutsy, isn't it, to actually be young and jump aboard going, you know what, I'm getting off the ship now. I don't know where I am. I'm in Western <laughs> Australia. So, and I remember the first time I flew over Australia, you're still flying over it six hours later. It is a big country. <laughs> and <laughs> so for him to find himself there, how did he find himself? How did he get himself to Sydney? Oh, well, it took him about five or six years. So um, he, you know, obviously there was a lot of um, poverty in Greece post-war um, and, and he had a, a terrible um, uh, incident, I guess, in the, in the sense that politics um, had his mother shot in front of him and he was four mm. years old and he was the third out of four children. So really bad memories, a really tough childhood. And so by the time he was 17, he just had to get out of the place, really. Um, and so with very little education, he um, got onto the ship as a kitchen hand. And as, as I mentioned, he jumped ship in Western Australia and the authorities eventually caught up with him and he was detained in Albany for a good two months and it was it was you know they were trying to find the the ship's captain to see if my father was worthy was a good man and worthy of staying in Australia and eventually he was cleared and set set um set free and so he made his way from Western Australia um working along the way and he then settled in a country town of South Australia called Wyala for five years. Um, and then eventually, because my mum and him had gone to school together and had known each other all this time and they had continued to write to each other, eventually my mum made her way, um, and it was all paid for her, um, to um, Woolamaloo, which is now a, a very trendy suburb in Sydney, and her, her ship docked there. And so when dad found out that that's where she was going to dock he decided that uh, Wyala wasn't really a, a great place um, to have a family and so luckily he moved to Sydney and um, and so ha, I was born in Sydney several years later so that's how he made his way um, yeah from from Western Australia to South to to Sydney it took him five years um, but yeah along the way lots of stories and lots of different work and yeah and now very inspiring yeah so he's very Australianized now. Mm. <laughs> well, that's really cool to hear the stories, though, isn't it? Because um, there's some gutsy things that happened, you know, oh. along the way for all of us to be where we are. Oh. Um, you know, so that's that's amazing. Now, there's one question I love to ask all my guests: is if you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would it be, and why would you choose them? Well, <laughs> oh, um, well, thank you for that question. Oh, well, I, um, oh, I would have to say, um, and not in no particular order, um, I, I would love to have dinner with my husband in, in perpetuity because he, um, he's a great conversationalist. Um, he has an interesting backstory in the sense that it was very Dickensian for him for the first 14 years of his life and, you know, his parents put him in an orphanage and pretty much forgot about him. Um, and then, of course, he lived on the streets of London as a young teenager, I guess, you know, at the age of 14. Um, but he managed to turn that adversity into um, also being a great humanitarian and, and changing healthcare on the global scale. So he has got really some interesting stories and he's one of the most inspirational um, people I know. And so if I could continue those wonderful dialogues that I have with him every day, forever that would be <laughs> wonderful um so that's that's him um the other um oh I would love to take my girls to Greece to the Greek island my parents 
Bourbon and have just the longest, longest summer lunch with all my extended family, both dead and alive, like my grandparents, my great aunts, aunts, cousins, their kids, and just give my girls um, a sense of that part of the culture and and just, yeah, the the love that's there. Um, That would be wonderful. And then um, there is a woman who I've been following and I've been really inspired by, um, and I don't know if you probably have heard of her, um, Ted and I, Trent, have you heard of her? No, I haven't heard she, of her. Oh, I am. I think I'm actually obsessed by her story. Um, T-E-R-E-R-A-I and then Trent, T-R-E-N-T. She was born in Zimbabwe in the mid-60s and, again, you know, during a turbulent time um, and in acute poverty, um, no electricity, no running water in her community, um, was married off at the age of 11. Um, by the time she was 18, she had four children. Um, the person she had married was an abuser, all that stuff. And she was illiterate. And um, she just had this huge desire to learn how to read and write. And, of course, education for girls in Zimbabwe wasn't, wasn't a thing. And um, and so her mum said, um, you know, write your dreams on a piece of paper and, you know, with tenacity you will fulfil them. And so for me, she's, I would love to have dinner with her because she is, well, she dared to dream. She really dared to dream. And to cut a long story short, she found her way to the US with her four children and undertook a, a, an undergraduate um, whilst working three different jobs. Um, so it took her 20 years from the time that she wrote those dreams down to, um, you know, fulfilling her dream of being educated and also going on to do her PhD. But her mum actually said, it's not, your, your dream has to be meaningful. And for your dream to be meaningful, you also have to benefit other people, your community other than yourself. So, <laughs> so after 20 years of getting an education, she came back and now she's built all these schools um, in Zimbabwe. And I think she, you know, she had all these philanthropists and, of course, she shared her story. And so for me, my God, that would be That's an inspiring. amazing person to have at your dinner party because just the sheer guts of it, um, the tenacity but, um, yeah, the, the, the focus on making her dream come true um, is really inspiring. Um, and also, it's very inspiring, yes. Mm. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think mm. I have heard of her before and her story is extremely inspiring. Yeah. And, yeah, just to go from there to where she is now is amazing. Totally. Amazing. I don't know how, yeah, oh, God. So I know she's written a few books and I haven't had the opportunity to get my hands on them, but I, I will do so. You know, I've just um, been following her with, you know, various TEDx um talks and yeah articles etc etc but yeah what a formidable woman yeah and what a wonderful dinner table and oh. um, and just even with all your greek uh, family as well mm. i can remember going to athens mm. um with some friends and meeting her mother and cousins and aunts mm. etc and i have never had a welcome like it and, and i still remember it was just like unbelievably welcoming oh, just we were treated like princesses it was amazing oh, yeah and food right oh food. food oh my god the food was incredible and days and days no, of planning I yeah know, I, know. I know and they do it so effortlessly and I see my mum doing it so effortlessly and I I just don't know but it's a, it's a skill you know <laughs> all of a sudden you have this huge table laden with food and it all takes I just can't do it you know but yeah <laughs> Mm, anyway. no, it's amazing. Mm. Well, just before we go, um, well, actually two things. One is how do we find out more about you? Um, would you like to give us your website? So sure. That, um, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, it's www.kasmiri. Um, so it's K-A-S-M-I-R-I dot co dot N-Z. And um, Kashmiri is the Nepali word for Kashmir. Um, and um, and then there's also the Instagram, which is uh, 
Kashmiri under underscore lifestyle. Beautiful. And I'll make sure that um, those details go go out. Oh. Do you speak a little bit of Nepalese? No, I mean, just the basics. Just, just the basics. The basics. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm dying to go back over there, um, really, yeah. because um, especially with our um, education program and sort of advancing that and, and looking at ways we can partner with various people. Um, but, yeah, I, I would love, love, you know, Ray and I, or my husband and I, we got married in Nepal as well. So that was, yeah, the, I forgot about that detail, but um yeah, I mean, we had a Sydney a wedding and then um, I think it was about eight months later um, our Nepalese colleagues um, said, why don't you have a Hindu traditional Nepalese um, wedding? And and we did. And that was that was one of the best days of our lives, really. So, yeah, anyway, that was just a beautiful way I put that in. Sorry about that. But, yeah. No, that's lovely. That's really nice. And I think it's all, it, it's all what makes us us, you know, oh. all of these different experiences and yours are really remarkable as well because they've taken you around the world to see the extremes that, that goes on. Oh as well wow. um, so my my last question is um as women who own who we are wow. and we need to own who we are what's most remarkable about what you do and who you are and I should just say you've already told us quite a few things that I definitely put you in the remarkable camp but um yeah what's your perception of yourself as being remarkable um I think um, just always pursuing things from an ethical centre um, and having a really strong moral compass. And I think it's because of those experiences in those developing countries and spending so much time being exposed to acute poverty and injustices um, has um, given quite a you know, um, I guess a, a roadmap for me so that any business I'm involved in has to have, you know, the the interests of um, people at the centre. I think it's really easy to make money these days. I mean, you could import, I don't know, plastic water bottles and, and make money out of that, but it's not really going to benefit people. Um, and especially people in these developing countries. So for me, I guess what's remarkable is, yeah, always looking at things of, okay, this makes great business sense, but is it really helping our planet and our people? Um, and if it is, then that's that's a goal. So, yeah. It's beautiful. Being humanitarian all the way through, really. <laughs> you, you are, and it sounds like you need your soulmate as well. <laughs> Oh, so yeah. for both of you to be so involved at that level is, is, is lovely. So, well, Anna, thank you so much for joining me on Remarkable Woman Radio. I'm, I've, it's been an honour to meet you and, and thank you so much. And make sure that you guys all check out kashmiri.co.nz and have a look at these beautiful, beautiful Kashmir products, um, shawls and robes, etc. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking to someone during lockdown other than my family. So thank you, Mandy. <laughs> it's been fun. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to Remarkable Woman Radio. For more episodes and more details of today's show, please go to remarkablemindset.com. Let me ask you, what makes you remarkable? Remarkable.